The following audio is from Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee, where our mission is to follow Christ and His mission of loving people, places, and things to life. For more information about Christ Presbyterian Church, please visit ChristPres.org. Today's scripture reading is from John 1, 43-51. The next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, Follow me. Now Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, Come and see. Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? Jesus answered him, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. Jesus answered him, Because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, Truly, truly I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. This is the word of the Lord. Praise Praise be to Christ. Christ. Thanks, Rosemary. Well, Good morning, everybody. Happy New Year to you. Good to be with you. And uh, what we're going to do today is we're going to pick right up uh, with the series that we were uh, doing before the new year. And uh, we're about in the middle of it somewhere. And uh, it's Encounters with Christ. And today's encounter is with a man named Nathaniel, who we're going to uh, refer to as a religious skeptic uh, who became a disciple. And so Uh, The blockbuster movie, Forrest Gump, Uh, there's a scene there where Lieutenant Dan, uh, who has lost his legs in battle, lashes out at God, but but it it starts in the form of a conversation with his friend, Forrest Gump, and he looks at Forrest and he says, have you found Jesus yet, Gump? And Forrest responds, I didn't know I was supposed to be looking for him, sir. Lieutenant Dan says, that's what all these people down at the VA talk about. Jesus this and Jesus that. Have I found Jesus yet? They even had a priest come to talk to me. He said, God is listening. And if I found Jesus, I'd get to walk beside him in the kingdom of heaven. Did you hear what I said? Walk beside him in the kingdom of heaven. Well, kiss my crippled rear end. God is listening, what a crock. You might say that Lieutenant Dan was a committed skeptic, agnostic, or what have you. He seems too angry at God to be an atheist. He's at least acknowledging the existence of God. But he represents a lot of us, probably a lot of us in this room, who have our own reasons for keeping our safe distance from God. For him, the defeater or that, 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 that belief that defeated Christianity in his mind is human suffering and the goodness of God are incompatible. And therefore, since I suffer, God can't be good, and so forget about him. Others are impaired by other things. Guilt is one of the reasons why many of us keep our 
distance from God. We may come to church, but that's about it. We, we still keep our distance. Peter had some moments like that. There's a time when, when Jesus is, is teaching and, and, and Peter is struck by, by the authority with which Jesus teaches and the things that Jesus is teaching. And he looks at Jesus and he says, go away from me, Lord. I'm a sinful man. I can't abide with you. Zacchaeus, the tax collector, is another one. He, he wants to get a glimpse at Jesus, but, but he climbs up into a tree because he has no notion in his mind that Jesus would actually want to have a meal with him or have anything to do with him for that matter. And then others keep their distance from Jesus because of intellectual difficulties or because of the exclusive claims of Christianity which seem offensive, where Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life, and no person comes to God except through me. All kinds of reasons. And this, this week's encounter is with a man named Nathaniel who has his own reasons for keeping his distance from Jesus. And his, his first response to Christ uh, even though he ends up differently, his first response is, is one of a religious skeptic. And so what I would like to do is talk about some of the reasons for his initial skepticism and also the reasons for his, his sudden pivot, his sort of 180-degree turn and what triggered that. So, so let's talk first about the reasons for Nathaniel's skepticism. Uh, basically, the reason why he's skeptical about the claims that his friend Philip is making about him that he's the Messiah, that the law and the prophets and Moses have been predicting. He's the king of the universe that we've all been waiting for, who's going to make broken things whole and, 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 and make beautiful things out of the dust and out of us, like we've sung earlier today. He's the answer. We found him, Philip says. The problem that Nathaniel has with this claim is that Jesus, by virtually every measure, isn't outsider in areas that matter most to a first century committed Jewish man. There are social reasons, there are political reasons, and also personal reasons why Nathaniel would want to keep a distance. So the social reasons. Philip says, we've found him, the one we've been waiting for. He's the son of Joseph and Mary from Nazareth. And, and Nathaniel famously responds, can anything good come from Nazareth? Nazareth was a place on the outskirts, an obscure sort of hick town that, that people didn't respect. Uh, it was the place uh, that was known for underdogs and sort of social outcasts and losers living there. At least that's how somebody like Nathaniel would have thought. And if you look at the life of Christ, you would think that that that, that somebody who's born in a Jewish environment and going to, you know, be a, a Jewish leader would, would try to somehow compensate for his place of birth uh, by the way that he conducted his life, and yet he doesn't at all. He actually kind of sticks with the Nazareth theme throughout his life by virtue of the friend groups that he chooses to be part of and the people that he chooses to invite into his inner ring, and you'll, you'll notice a disproportionate absence of movers and shakers in Jesus's inner ring. Not a whole lot of A-listers, not a whole lot of VIPs. 
But if you were a prostitute, a tax collector, an addict, a no-name, a leper, a paralytic, if the religious community referred to you as a sinner, you would have had a really good chance of being part of Jesus's inner ring. And so this, this of course, doesn't make sense to Nathaniel. It didn't make sense to anyone. If you look at, at both uh, Matthew's gospel and also Luke's gospel, in, in both gospels, it says that there are all sorts of people saying that Jesus must be a glutton and must be a drunk, not because they'd ever witnessed him doing anything in excess, not, that, not because they'd ever witnessed him being drunk, because neither had ever happened, but because of the friends that he kept, because of the associations that he kept. He must be a glutton and a drunk, they said, because he's a friend of tax collectors and sinners. If you go to the seventh chapter of Luke's gospel, you see this played out at a dinner party that Jesus had been invited to by some of the religious leaders, kind of the pastor, theologian types, and the the church elder types. And in comes a woman unannounced who is described as as a woman who had lived a sinful life in that town, probably a prostitute by virtue of the way she's dressed and and the way she's behaving. And Jesus warmly receives her. And, and all of them, much like Nathaniel, take their distance from Jesus and from her and say, see, no way he can be a prophet. Impossible because she's a sinner. And he's receiving her warmly, guilty by association. And, and Nathaniel, that dinner party, that Pharisee dinner party, these are just both sort of exhibits of the fact that every human heart has uh, what you could call judgment triggers. Judgment triggers, criteria that we use in order to separate the world between the good people and the bad people, between those who are in and those who are out, between us and them. Every human heart has those judgment triggers, and and your triggers are different than mine, but we've all got them. We could maybe call them our isms. Pick a few from this list to claim for yourself. Tribalism, racism, nationalism, conservatism, liberalism, sexism, classism, Wesleyanism, Calvinism, isms. Jesus did not share Nathaniel's isms, which put him on the outside of Nathaniel's consideration circle for who the great Messiah could be. Does Jesus share our isms? Let's think about the way that we sort of measure people. Let's think for a moment about, you know, that, that, that point of decision after we meet somebody where we decide whether or not we're going to pursue anything further than the superficial conversation where we get introduced. What are the questions we might ask? What's his net worth? His net worth was zero. What does he do? He worked with his hands. Where did he go to college? Nowhere. What did he look like? Unimpressive. Where is he from? The Middle East. Nazareth. What are his politics? Hard to say. He's known for being too conservative for liberals and too liberal for conservatives. How about his wife and kids? Doesn't have any. His social networks, see above. 
So this guy does not make sense. Jesus does not make sense to Nathaniel and all those many, 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 many people that Nathaniel's perspective would have represented. There are also political reasons why Nathaniel would uh, be skeptical about Jesus. You know, Philip says to him, we found him, we're confident, this is the one. Who is he? Great warrior, great military hero, you know, you know accomplished politician, a business leader. Tell me about him. Well, son of Joseph, son of Mary, a couple of obscure teenagers from an obscure hick town called Nazareth. He's the one the Old Testament has been predicting for us all along. The prevailing interpretation of the Old Testament texts in those days in terms of what the Messiah would look like is that he would be a political military force. You know, resembling Nietzsche's Ubermensch, Superman. You know, one who is poised to win at the social Darwinian game, to kick you-know-what and take names. They were looking for the same thing that the ancient Israelites were looking in their, for in their first king, whose name was Saul. And the criteria by which they chose Saul, who was ultimately rejected by the Lord, was that his head was above all the rest. He was, he was tall. He was almost nine feet tall. And he was an accomplished military hero. Lead us. And it ended up being a train wreck because they were looking to politics for, for what only God could accomplish. They wanted a repeat of the Exodus event when they were politically delivered from the oppression of the Egyptian pharaoh by God, but they wanted a human being to do it for them this time around, to deliver them from the oppression of Rome and whatever remnant there was of the exile to Babylon and Assyria, which had been so much a part of their history. The book of Hebrews says this. The book of Hebrews is all about the supremacy of Jesus Christ. And one of the first things that the book of Hebrews says is that Jesus Christ is a prophet who is better than Moses and, is sal and provides a salvation greater than the salvation that Israel experienced from the Egyptian Pharaoh. It's a salvation from things like the flesh, from my own instinct to do what Adam and Eve did in the garden, seek independence from God, from the devil, that invisible enemy who's just as real as the five fingers I'm showing you right now, and the pride of life, which is what causes us, as it caused Nathaniel, to keep our distance from the one who is making an absolute claim over our lives. He wants to dominate in a very different way. You look at Jesus' life from birth all the way to his death, and the optics are not good for this kind of expectation that, that the Israelite community had for who their Messiah would be. As a child, he's, he's born from Nazareth, and then he, his parents become refugees and sort of take him along. As an adult, things are not gaining traction in his life and ministry and influence with the masses. After his resurrection, he had 500 eyewitnesses uh, or more to his, uh, his resurrection and ho had only just a little bit more than 200 followers after his resurrection. So more people than not who witnessed his resurrection 
did not follow him. The optics were not great. John the Baptist, his cousin, was thrown in jail because of his belief in Jesus as Messiah, and John the Baptist even started to doubt, are you really the one we've been expecting? Because this isn't panning out the way I thought it would, because it's not me, you know, you know, you know stomping on Herod's neck with my foot. It, it's, it's Herod that's about to sever my head at my neck from my body. We're losing at the political game. Could you be the Messiah? And then he dies as an enemy of state. We will say it in the Apostles' Creed in a moment. He was crucified under Pontius Pilate, the governor. You know, in the play Jesus Christ Superstar, the, the Pontius Pilate character looks over at Jesus and says, Who is this broken man cluttering up my hallway? Who is this unfortunate? So this is Jesus Christ. I'm really quite surprised. You look so small. Not a king at all. That's what Nathaniel might have been thinking. And then there were also personal reasons. You know, Jesus says to him, Behold, an Israelite in whom there is no deceit, to which Nathaniel responds, How do you know me? You know, he's uncomfortable with Jesus' remark about his personality. And so, walls go up, distance is, is created. It, it, it's as if perhaps Nathaniel has been reading the French philosopher Jean-Paul Sartre, who, who, who said the famous words, hell is to be looked at. Hell is to be known beyond the surface level. We're all terrified of that. And so what Nathaniel does is he projects this surface bravado, this, this air of confidence and this, this machismo. He's a straight shooter. He's too cool for school. Maybe a little bit of a pretentious swagger in him. You know, Jesus, you just need to stay away from my personal space. You're too much of a close talker. You know, back off. He's got reasons, various reasons for his skepticism, but then he pivots, and, and it's, it's, it's radical, it's immediate. What happened? Jesus says this. He says one more thing. I saw you under the fig tree, and for whatever reason, those words completely transformed Nathaniel. We have no idea what Jesus saw. All we know is who Jesus saw under the fig tree. He saw Nathaniel, and, and this statement got Nathaniel's attention immediately, and he does an about-face, game over. He, he, he says, you're my rabbi. When, when you called somebody a rabbi, it was a declaration that this is the person you're going to follow for the rest of your life. You're going to build your life around that person's vision, your rabbi's vision for the kingdom of God. He says, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. Just because he said, I saw you under a fig tree. What changed his perspective? I think it's clear. In a phrase that is repeated three times in this text, I saw you. I saw you. And then he talks about angels and a ladder and so on. I'll get to that in a minute. But what did Jesus see under the tree? So a couple of things. Um, I think I saw Ryan Myers and Rachel. Sorry to call you out. Okay, so they are part of a ministry that we are going to drive you to this year to get you into the Bible, reading it every day. 
Okay, it's called He Reads Truth, She Reads Truth. One of the ways you can get into the scriptures really easily. Sorry to call you guys out. I didn't ask your permission. But they would agree, as all the pastors on our staff would agree, all our leaders, all our elders, all our deacons, all our deaconesses, all our teachers, we would all agree that every single word of the Bible matters. It's there for a purpose. It's intentional. That includes the genealogies. That includes Leviticus. That includes those long, long chapters about who begat who and all those little intricate details about how the temple was set up and curtains and measurements. It all matters. Every word of it. And for much of it, we'll never understand in our lifetime why. All we know is that it's profitable, and therefore we are to engage it and ingest it and and, and ask questions of it and interact and relate to it. Let the clear interpret what's unclear and so on and trust, as Isaiah promises, that every single word of God, none of it will return to us void or empty. It will accomplish its purpose. This is true of everything that's written in there. It's also true of what's omitted. And what's omitted in this account are all the details about what Jesus saw under that fig tree. You know, talked about Mary a couple of weeks ago and how she came to Jesus as a bit of a skeptic too, but her doubts and her skepticism was more from a rational basis. How can I, a virgin, give birth to a child? And we see, you know, we unpacked how Jesus walked her, you know, the spirit of Jesus and the angel of Jesus walked her through that, and we talked about how there's some actually really wildly intelligent scientific Ivy League people, in fact, most of them who founded the Ivy Universities, came to believe in the virgin birth and and the miracles and so on, but that's another sermon that you can reference on the website. If your hang-ups and your distancing is for rational reasons, we want to take you intellectually seriously and not dismiss your rational distancing, but we also want to say there are things to consider. But what won Nathaniel over was something more personal, more existential, more emotional, more visceral, more relational, and that is that Jesus says, I see you. I see you. That's all we know about the fig tree experience. You know, when you get together and start to get to know new people, um, particularly as a married couple, Patty and I, when we get to know new people, the question tends to come up, how did you guys meet? And here's our story. Patty saw me a lot longer before I saw her. She loved me before we had our first conversation. She, and she is not this type of person. She is the type of person in that she gets premonitions of things, and she's wildly accurate with the things that she feels like are about to happen. Call her a prophet, who knows? So that's one thing that's true. And the other thing that's true about her is she's the furthest thing from fickle and silly. And yet she told her own parents before we had our first conversation, she thinks she's going to marry me. This is a picture of what Jesus is saying to Nathaniel. I saw you long before you saw me. I loved you long before you ever even had a chance to love me. It's a biblical theme. Jeremiah chapter 1, before I formed you in the womb, the Lord says, I knew you and I set you apart. I'll get a little bit theological controversial here. Ephesians 1, Romans 8, predestination. That's a Bible word. That's not a Reformed 
Presbyterian Christian word. That's a Bible word. You were in love predestined. You were dead in your transgressions and sins, but God made you alive. He took the corpse that you were and breathed life into it. Your fight is not with me. It's with the Holy Scripture itself. But right next to that word predestination is also the word foreknew. Those God loved, he also foreknew. And the, or those God predestined, he also foreknew. The literal translation from the Greek, any Greek scholar would tell you this, is he foreloved you. He foreknew you in the same way and with the same word that Joseph knew Mary when they consummated their marriage. And in the same way that Adam knew Eve when they consummated their marriage. That's how God knew you before you even knew he existed. He saw you under the fig tree. He sees the best in us. He sees the worst in us. The best in us. So, so did you see this? Nathaniel insults Jesus. He insults him twice. Can anything good from, come from Nazareth? Rhetorical question. The assumed answer is no. How do you know me? Now, how do you respond when you're insulted? Especially by somebody you know ten times more about whatever you're talking about than they do, and they insult you. I was insulted on a New York subway by a woman once. Our family was traveling from place to place, and, and the woman, she was drunk. She looks to Patty, and she says, your daughters are beautiful. And of course, we're like, well, we agree. Yeah, thank you for saying that. And then she looks over at me and says, I bet Grandpa's really proud of him, too. <laughs> and, yeah, really funny. And, uh, and so, of course, we get off the subway, and I say, you girls know she was drunk, right? And that's the only reason why she would say anything. And they're like, yeah, right, Dad. We know why you shave your head. But here's how Jesus responds to the insult. I finally found one, a man in whom there's no deceit. There's an integrity there, a truth-telling, an honest heart. You never leave us guessing, do you? How does he go there from insults? And then he goes to the Old Testament. You will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man, yours truly. He's referring to Genesis chapter 28 and a dream that was had by Jacob, when God caused Jacob to fall into a deep sleep, it says in a certain place, much like the fig tree, a there was a certain place for Jacob called the fig tree, which was the turning point for him, or for Jacob called Bethel, which was the turning point for him. And in that dream, God promised him, there's going to be a glorious land that I'm going to give to you. There, you're going to have more offspring, more children, more sons and daughters, than the number of grains of sands, sand on the earth. You are going to be the father of the whole world of God. And I'm going to be with you the whole way. And Jacob's reaction, how awesome is this place? That's how he wakes up. In the same way that Nathaniel wakes up. How awesome that you saw me under the tree. You're, 
You're my rabbi. You're the son of God. You are the king of Israel. You're what they're saying, aren't you? The point here in both instances, whether Jacob or Nathaniel, is all is grace. You know what Jacob's daddy, you know know what Jacob's dad named him? Jacob. You know what Jacob means? Liar. Figure out the counseling you're going to need when your dad names you liar. And what does God do? He says, from now on, you're Israel. You're the one who has wrestled with God. Forget that wimpy little father of yours. You've wrestled with God and you've prevailed. So your name will be, he wrestles with God. That's what Israel means. And all this blessing is going to come to the world through you. And by the way, Jacob was a liar. Shoe fit with the name. And what does he call Nathaniel? The abrasive straight shooter, the offensive insulter? No guile. Man of integrity, truth teller. Good and honest heart. God is constantly doing this. He's constantly saying to his chosen beloved, I will not define you by your worst behavior, but only by your best potential. And so he looks at Peter the coward and he says, you're the rock. He looks at the widow who gives the smallest numerical gift in the whole temple and says, she's the most generous of all of you. Luke 7, the woman that I told you about, the prostitute who barges into the Pharisee's house using the tools of her trade, her hair and her lips to express love to the Son of God the only way she knows how. And all the religious people are calling her a sinner and Jesus says she's a lover. Why don't you learn a thing or two from her? Saul of Tarsus on the road to Damascus to commit genocide against followers of Jesus. And Jesus stops him in his way and says, from now on, you're my messenger. You're no longer a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent man. Who else? David, adultery with Bathsheba, murders her husband, abuses his power. My name for you is going to be man after God's own heart. Judas. Judas is in the act of betraying Jesus. And what does Jesus whisper to him? Friend. Do what you came here to do. Friend. Betray away. In other words, you are going to be judged forever for this. But I want you to know that my demeanor toward that is that I see it as a tragedy. Not an occasion to skip to Malou over your grave. It's breaking my heart. You are friend to me. Even the betrayer, even the son of perdition. No gloating. None. You know, the, the book by Cormac McCarthy, which was turned into a movie, No Country for Old Men, there's this scene where the retired sheriff is having a reflected, reflective sort of old man, older man's, older gentleman's conversation with his uncle. And he says this to his uncle, I always thought that when I got older that God would sort of come into my life in some way. He didn't. I don't blame him. If I was him, I'd have the same opinion about me that he does. But the truth is that the sheriff had an inaccurate opinion about who God is. 
Because he not only sees the best in us, he sees the worst in us. When those who are foreloved and have been foreloved by God fight against him, God starts to fight for our hearts. And the way that he wins our hearts is through what Proverbs calls a gentle answer. Proverbs 15.1, a gentle answer turns away wrath. And this is how he wins Nathaniel's heart. Jesus says, I saw you under the fig tree. What, do, what did he see exactly? We have no idea. It's a purposeful omission to leave room for the imagination, which tells us it could have been anything. It could have been a hidden virtue. Perhaps under that fig tree, Nathaniel was praying, making a vow, feeding the hungry. Perhaps it was there that he finally forgave an enemy. Or maybe it was hidden pain. Perhaps Nathaniel was an abuse victim under that fig tree and Jesus saw it. Perhaps he was crying out in loneliness or from his depression or from his financial trouble or the diagnosis he just received or uh, in light of the hard marriage that he felt stuck inside of or that maybe he buried a child under that fig tree. We don't know. Or maybe it was hidden sins. Perhaps it was under that tree that Nathaniel berated a child with his loose tongue or committed a crime or passed out drunk like Noah did once or told an injurious lie like Jacob had all the time or solicited a prostitute or committed blasphemy. What's notable here is that what the fig tree is famous for is that Jesus cursed one once. I love what Richie Sessions has said Uh, sometimes in our small group. I don't know if he's set it up here yet. But he says, don't you love how God redeems things? It seems like God is always going back to, to the precise place where the curse happens. And it's right there that he redeems it. What Jesus saw under this fig tree is, in the end, immaterial. What matters is he saw Nathaniel in the same way that he sees you, at your best and at your worst. And he responds with a gentle, gentle answer. Fall 2006, Charles Carl Roberts IV, a Pennsylvania milk truck driver, made a decision to burst into a one-room Amish schoolhouse and open fire. And in that murderous act, he killed five Amish Amish girls and left five more Amish girls severely injured. And he then turned the gun on himself, and he left a suicide note. And in this suicide note, he was describing how he had been tormented under his own uh, fig tree, Uh, one from guilt because... 20 years prior, he had molested two of his younger family members, and he confessed this in his suicide note, and that had tortured him. The guilt had tortured him for years. And the other is the sadness that he experienced day after day under his fig tree because of the death of his daughter nine years prior, which was the event that led him to hate God in the same way that Lieutenant Dan did. And at his funeral, there were two groups of attendees, a small number of friends and family, you know, family friends and and family members, his widow and three children specifically. Uh, 
and then 30 people from the Amish community who had buried their, their daughters, five of their daughters, the day before. NPR reports on that incident this way. At the funeral, the Amish families who had buried their own daughters just the day before were in attendance, and they hugged the widow, and they hugged other members of the killer's family. It turns out that a gentle answer doesn't just turn away wrath, it also has the potential and power to turn away despair. Jesus does not heal wounds lightly. Days later, it was, was reported that this very same Amish community was donating money to the killer's widow and to his three children. You know, Dr. King once said, darkness cannot drive out darkness, only light can do that. Hate cannot drive out hate, only love can do that. A gentle answer turns away wrath. And so when Jesus says, you'll see even greater things than these, it's another one of those y'alls, y'all. You all will see. Not just talking to one man here, he's talking to everybody. You all will see greater things than these. He's speaking to a community. What could be greater than Jesus seeing a man under a tree? A whole community of people forgiving in the same manner that they have been forgiven. Where does the power for this Amish witness come from? They had come, it's to come to realize at some point along the way that Jesus had seen them under their tree and, 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 and then turned their attention to his tree, which is the shadow under which we all live now. Christ has died. And Christ has risen, and Christ will come again. Christ has died. His tree was a tree of betrayal, of tears, of death, of resurrection, and of virtue. And His tree is there so that we can be sure that He will meet us under any tree. Let's close with this prayer penned thousands of years ago by the abuser of power, by the adulterer, by the murderer, by the man after God's own heart, who was given a new name, David. Psalm 139. Let's pray as Pastor Filson comes to lead us at the table. You have searched me, Lord, and you know me. You know when I sit and when I rise, you perceive my thoughts from afar. You discern my going out and my lying down. You are familiar with all my ways. Before a word is on my tongue, you, Lord, know it completely. You hem me in behind and before. You lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me, too lofty for me to attain. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you're there. If I make my bed in the depths, you're there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there your hand will guide me. Your right hand will hold me fast. If I say, surely the darkness will hide me and the light become night around me, even the darkness will not be dark to you. The night will shine like the day, for darkness is as light to you. Amen.